Hello, everyone. This is Sarah Swink from Nixon Peabody and Charles Whipple. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Intala and COVID-19. Um, my name again is Sarah Swink, and I am in the law firm Nixon Peabody out of the Washington, D.C. office. And it's my pleasure to have with me today uh, Charles Whipple. He's the Senior Vice President and Deputy General Counsel of Wellforce. Wellforce is an integrated delivery system in eastern Massachusetts with four community hospital campuses, an academic medical center, a children's hospital, a home care division, and a physician network of more than 2,000 physicians that span from Cape Cod to New Hampshire, uh, the New Hampshire border. Um, Charles has been, just like me, a, a member of AHLA for more than 20 years, and he used to be the chair of the in-house practice group. Charles, welcome. Um, we're looking forward to talking to you about Mentala today. Thank you very much, Sarah. I appreciate the opportunity to have that discussion about this uh, evolving situation that is uh, challenging our healthcare system today. Yeah, it's, um, it's, we're like, we're definitely living in unprecedented times here. And, um, and so what we're going to talk a little bit about is Antala emergency rooms, um, maybe some of the offsite um, screening facilities that are getting set up and how those interplay with the Antala rules. Um, so Charles, you have been in the kind of the eastern Massachusetts area and I know years ago you and I, I reached out we're reaching out to you when the Boston bombers um, situation happened and you personally have worked through um, a crisis situation are there any lessons that you had learned um, from that from that situation that you think um, would be helpful for our audience today well yes unfortunately you know, the Boston area uh, teaching and community hospitals did uh, have learned, get some experience related to uh, disaster pre preparation and response with the Boston Marathon bombing a few years ago. I think there are some lessons we can learn. I think there's some very large differences, though, in the pandemic with the coronavirus that we're facing today. In a typical emergency response, there's an event that occurs and then you call put in together your incident command and respond and it's very intense at the time with the outbreak of the coronavirus and COVID-19 hospitals in the Boston area have been able to call upon that experience of responding to an event but we're actually doing this in advance I mean the, yes there are cases in eastern Massachusetts of COVID-19 and uh, patients that are suspected to have COVID-19, but there hasn't been one traumatic impactful event that occurred that triggered it. And so we have the ability to be preparing in advance of what we believe is going to be a tremendous surge on our institutions. Um, and so we're getting all, we're gearing up, but we're having this waiting. So yes, our training with uh, incident command uh, services and NIMS under the FEMA model have we've prepared underneath those and we've tested them with the Boston Marathon bombing responses and we've put them in place, but we're just gearing up now waiting for the event to happen as we see the spread of this virus uh, go from pockets throughout the country. Um, and in, uh, so it's a kind of a waiting game. It's an odd, odd place for providers and systems to be in, uh, continuing to run their day-to-day -day operations uh, while there are prepping for a surge of coronavirus patients. So it's, it's an interesting uh, 
balancing act that's going on right now. Yeah, it's interesting because my preparedness, I guess, trip like experiences were while I was in house in Washington, D.C., and we were doing bioterrorism preparation and then uh, H1N1 swine flu preparation in 2009. And in some ways, like the bioterrorism event would be, you wouldn't see it coming, and swine flu, we, we saw it, but it's, this still feels different to me, and it has since the beginning. Um, Think, you know, I'm trying to think through what are some of the reasons why that might be. I mean, one, I think it's the spread of it and um, also just the seasonal nature of H1N1 um, gave us some relief over the summer and time bought us some time to create a vaccine um, and, and distribute it um, during the next season of it. So it's, it's been quite interesting. I was talking um, yesterday with somebody, an attorney who was in the New Orleans area during Katrina and and talking about maybe some of the differences and similarities that we may may see uh, with uh, shortages and uh, supply shortages and personnel shortages. Well that is the supply shortages and the ability to gather appropriate and necessary resources is the items that are obviously charged uh, causing the greatest amount of concern uh, both locally in the Boston area but nationally and the ability to have appropriate levels of uh, personal protective equipment to, uh, as we do not have a vaccine against this, there's research going on against it. We have to be able to take precautions to protect our frontline staff, our nurses, our techs, our physicians, so that we can continue to provide care when needed most and, and not being able to acquire sufficient amounts to give us comfort. We have enough right now, but if, if there's a huge surge you know that next layer of inventory is is the challenge that we're we're facing, and the fact that there has been a delay in having a sufficient number of tests uh, kits in order to determine if someone has coronavirus has you know caused a challenge with understanding and the the scope and spread of the virus, and that really plays into the waivers that have been coming out of the federal government and in this podcast that we're talking about the Antala waiver that has been put out because there is this mixed message that's being portrayed in our 24 hour news cycle that we have now that we didn't have with prior uh, disease incidents such as you know swine flu or H1N1 or SARS it was a much slower news period and now it's uh, constant churn and you have messages going out of everyone should get tested. Tests are widely available when they're not widely available. Now there have been a lot of improvements to tests being available, but it does induce a lot of patients to seek uh, conversations with their providers, with their doctors, or to show up at emergency rooms looking for tests. And, and initially the CDC guidance was fairly proscriptive as to who would be tested uh, if they showed up with symptoms. So that's interesting. So Mtala, when we think about Mtala, one of the things that they look at is the uh, medical screening exam. And part of the screening is, is the, the visit, whether it's in an emergency room, urgent care center, or a physician visit, whether that's in person or telehealth. Um, but this idea of like this, the visit the, and the screening and evaluation. And, and so um, I know there are certain, I've seen that certain hospitals have set up testing centers outside of their ED, like drive-up centers, 
And I think we're now starting to see alternative locations being um, set up for screening and testing. What are some of the things that you, you've seen? And we know Amtala will um, allow or permit for these alternative sites and it distinguishes between hospital controlled and not hospital controlled. So maybe we should talk about hospital controlled sites. Have you, have you seen any of that? Are there, are there suggestions or other things you've seen around um, setting up alternative sites that are not um, part of the emergency department? So a number of um, hospitals in the Boston marketplace have set up screening locations that are actually outside of their emergency rooms and pop-up tents to have the, the patients who are seeking tests to be not actually in the emergency department itself where we are all still receiving our normal patient load, uh, slightly reduced patient load, but uh, still receiving emergency patients, have that screening take place outside. Uh, fortunately, we're getting to springtime in the Boston area, so the weather is more conducive to having those pop-up tents. Uh, there are other locations that have created off-site uh, testing spots in parking lots uh, uh, adjacent to the hospital or near the hospital, or even some have looked at setting up off-site testing locations at urgent care centers that they operate. Uh, and that goes along with the uh, directives that you know we are allowed, uh, CMS advising that you can encourage the public to go to off-campus site instead of going to the hospital itself, uh, instead of going to that emergency department, being able to direct people to go some to another location before they show up at the emergency room. Another aspect that's been going on in the Boston marketplace uh, with community hospitals is discussions with their private practitioners who are on their medical staff to set up a centralized screening location in an effort to not have to replicate testing capabilities in a number of physician offices. And so if every private physician on a community hospital medical staff was going to be doing coronavirus testing, you know, they would need appropriate PPE, the swabs, uh, of which there is a shortage of that, as well as the, the face masks and the, and the uh, gowning. But having them come to one central location so that we don't have to spread out and have minimal resources of PPE and swabs, we can have it centralized. And that helps out because there is a limited number of tests. I mean, you can collect samples, but if you don't have the test to actually provide it, you know, it's not really doing a great job for advancing our identification of those who have the disease or are carrying the disease getting that centralized location to marshal resources. Yes, and so we know that Amtala says if it's a community site, then the, the Amtala obligations will not apply. And it's interesting that you're saying that it's happening across your um, medical staffs. Um, it also, uh, I mean, it was interesting just the fact that that guidance came out in, um, it feels like it was a long time ago, but it was March 9th, um, was kind of telling us where we think CMS um, was, where we might be headed, which was towards these community um, screening locations as well. One of the things, you know, another thing I read, Charles, was um, uh, Tufts University's president um, offering up the campus um, for care. We know um, if there is going to be major surges in the hospitals, um, we'll have to look at um, uh, where patients are cared for and if they um, come to the emergency room, 
Um, do they get transferred somewhere else if, if there's no more space or do they stay? Um, just curious if you, um, and any thoughts about, or, or anything you've learned in the Boston area, which I know is, is um, I'm unfortunately ahead of some of the other areas in, in across our country. Do you have, have you seen these um, all, like alternative places like the universities or otherwise being set up? But I, I've heard um, of people in certain cities setting like, um, they're like decommissioned hospital buildings that they're now trying to get up to speed and in the Tufts University space and other spaces. Um, have you, what are your thoughts about that? So in the Eastern Massachusetts market, and we are very fortunate to have a, a number of world-class academic medical centers and excellent community hospitals all in a very small geographic area. Um, over the course of the last 40 years, there have been a number of community hospital closings. So there are actually our vacant hospitals in and around within you know, a 15 mile radius of Boston. And there have been discussions uh, in the, uh, among providers about whether or not some of those facilities can be stood up uh, to take a patient overflow from the surge. Uh, there's one south of the city that Stewart Healthcare has been reported is going to uh, attempt to uh, reopen this facility and have designated it as a uh, COVID-19 treatment center. Um, so there are there are some benefits of being in the in a small geographic area with such a density of providers and universities. You reference you know different uh, universities or medical schools um, being able to step up um, as is across the country. Um, Boston and the colleges and universities have sent their students home and are doing most of their educational uh, efforts in an online manner, leaving large dormitories and college facilities open. Uh, I'm not aware of any specific agreements that are in place right now to utilize that, but it is potential for space. And some of the medical schools have had more detailed discussions with providers about the ability to um, Marshall resources of PPE, uh, but also the ability to potentially house patients. I think it's also an interesting aspect of, yes, when a patient does show up at your emergency room, you do have to give them their uh, EMTALA screening to, to, to uh, ensure that, but you don't actually have to admit them if you're able to divert them to a, an alternative care site. Um, if they don't have symptoms, if they're not emergent, uh, you may be able to have uh, the ability for them to go home or the ability for them to utilize a skilled nursing facility if that is available, or there are some other unique startup opportunities, um, companies in the Boston area who are talking about home hospital services, uh, that discussions are ongoing with them, that patients who may require a higher level of care than say a skilled nursing facility or home health services, but may be able to have a hospital level care at home without taking up a bed inside of one of the hospitals that may be needed in a surge. So, I mean, there's, all, yeah. there's a lot, I mean, it's really interesting. There's got a lot going on with that. And um, I know there's CDC guidance about when to, you know, um, to, to have somebody basically go home and then looking at, at, at the time, at least for now, the criteria really relates to the ability to care for themselves and who else is in the house that might be vulnerable or who could care for them 
but it sounds like we're one of the things to prepare for is also to um, where that may end up being the best place for people to go. And we'll, it'd be interesting to see if that criteria changes over time, the CDC criteria. So, yeah, I, the preparations for, for this expected surge of patients, uh, whether it's through testing or coming to the ED or being able to open up capacity for them is, is going to really change, I think, how healthcare is delivered in the future. I mean, obviously, the, there is a, a huge undertaking of converting to telemedicine for physicians who, who don't want their patients to come into offices and potentially affect uh, other individuals. But I think this, it's going to be uh, interesting after we get through this. I think the way that healthcare is delivered is going to have been fundamentally altered. Yeah, so it's interesting. So we have, so we talked about like coming to the ED, which is an EMTALA term of art, the defined term, which means, you know, people either walking in or, or ambulances showing up, um, you know, and EMTALA being an anti-dumping law, you can still see in the guidance that CMS is really concerned that hospitals not turn away patients. And so even with the community, if somebody shows up and wants to get tested or screened, not necessarily, um, still turning them away and looking at enforcement around, you know, transfers or, or deterring people from seeking care in the emergency room. Um, so, but I would, what I'm interested also in hearing about is, um, so as people set up these alternative sites and um, one of the other things that MTAL, the, you know, we're looking at under MTAL that, that, that is a concern is signage and people understanding where to go. And, and especially with, these potential surges. I mean, we're seeing in certain states, the National Guard is, is on alert. Um, you know, how best can a hospital, what do you think are some things, you know, to, to prep around signage or, or kind of movement of people? Again, you, we, you talked about there's this idea of putting the tent out, maybe to do some triaging with a, a nurse, an appropriate nurse, trained nurse, and you can tell when there's an emergency and getting them as fast to the, the actual emergency department. But, um, alternative entrances, but what are some, I guess, what are some other things around signage or screening on campus or that you're, that you're seeing or, or things that, um, that are some ideas for response? Well, one of the most important things is actually community education about where to, to uh, seek uh, a test or treatment with that if you think that you may have symptoms of or you want to be tested for for coronavirus and it's getting that information out in advance to say we're doing screening at this location and it and so that they're you want them to go to the right place to begin with I mean yes if they come to the, the emergency department and TALA rules are still applying you have to do your screening and and be able to determine that there's not an emergency condition that is existing and then be able and then move them to the appropriate site. But if you're able to provide education to them on the front end, whether that's through your website or through your marketing department for communicating of where we're doing this on your web page and so forth, getting them to go to the right place to start with. Uh, and then not have a surge all show up at the emergency department for, for tests. It's it's that communication aspect that is going to help help do this and encouraging patients and providers and educating providers, physicians, offices 
that before, you know, if a patient calls up wanting a, a, a coronavirus test, um, engaging them in a conversation about what symptoms they have before just sending them to the ED. And if you've informed your physicians on the medical staff, if it's a community hospital, like, look, this is where our central testing location is. And they can direct them to that as opposed to just telling their patients to go to the emergency room. Yeah, I think that's a lot of the time I've been spending lately is helping with um, some communication strategies and keeping up with the latest on what that might look like um, because the situation is so fluid and, and rapidly, rapidly changing. Um, you know, one of the things I think you you hit on was this this idea of telehealth and um, and the fact that we now have some waivers around that. Um, but are you seeing? Um, do you think like telehealth could be a good? It obviously, can be a good solution maybe for a tele ICU and some and and this idea of physician offices. Do you think telehealth has a place in the emergency department? Is there is there a place where that could be helpful, or 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 is it really focused on hospital like? Um, other parts of the hospital and physician offices. Yeah, I think the telehealth is is probably focused in other areas than in the ED. Um, having telehealth capabilities and the waivers and flexibility that have been, been given out uh, related to how telehealth can be delivered by providers in their offices will allow them to have that conversation and video with their patients to determine if they need to go to the emergency department or not, but and or for other practitioners to have uh, consultations with their providers, with their patients, actually using telehealth in the ED. I don't know how many how many organizations are actually set up to possibly have that, and I'm not exactly sure how how this waiver is going would assist with a, a tele evaluation. Um, to meet an EMTALA requirement as opposed to a, a physical uh, eval to determine if there's an emergency medical condition. Right, yeah, and it seems like from if we're thinking about um, one of the EMTALA requirements around stabilizing the patients and looking at the, the type of um, treatment that's needed, we're often looking at like, it looks like ventilators and um, trying to treat pretty critical um, pneumonias. Um, seems like maybe telehealth may be helpful in trying to stabilize people. But again, you talked about the shortage of, we might have some staffing and supply shortages or ventilator support uh, shortages that may be um, difficult to stabilize somebody in a particular hospital if, you, um, if, if there was not, for example, a ventilator available for somebody. Um, Right. Well, the waiver, you know, permitting the transfer of individuals who haven't been stabilized, uh, if it's related to the federal health emergency for COVID-19, I think that is helpful from a standpoint of, you know, if someone has presented at an ED that doesn't have the capacity or all their ventilators are in use and they know that there are some uh, available in a nearby facility and they can coordinate an appropriate transfer, I think there is some uh, relief granted by the waiver in that, but unfortunately, the the deficit of of ventilators to what the expected need is going to be, I think, is is going to limit the effectiveness of that flexibility. So my understanding is that there are other ways to 
treat somebody without a ventilator, but it's very um, personnel. I mean, I mean, you need a, a person actually like pumping a bag uh, uh, in very small intervals. And um, that may, we may need staff to be focusing on, on those type of issues. Um, and one of the things MTAL requires is a qualified medical professional does a, does a, a, a medical screening exam and, and at least the initial screening. Um, looking at that, I know some people have asked the question around, does it, does it have to be a physician? Can RNs do it? Um, and looking at like state licensure and bylaw um, issues around that. I've, have you all like, have you thought through some of the um, initial staffing or staffing when, if it were to become um, a critical issue where we'll need potentially nurses bagging people and if there's a lack of ventilators? Well, I think a point that you, the uh, requirement of staffing, uh, an appropriate staff member do the screening. I think you missed one part of our of the workforce that is available to us, which are advanced practitioners, whether it's a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. I think if appropriately trained, those individuals would be able to be uh, qualified to give the Impala screening. Uh, but workfor workforce uh, sustainability is obviously one of the emergency situations that everyone is action planning around in order to, to meet a possible surge. And certainly if uh, the workforce is depleted due to illness related to COVID-19. But having it's, you know, yes, physicians would be the best, uh, a, a, the normal option that you would have, but then looking at your NPs and physician assistants, as well as your nurses to be able to train them up to give appropriate levels of screening uh, would be necessary to have that continuity. You know, I heard um, somebody say that they had, um, so we know that, for example, elective procedures are are being canceled and it's um, depending on what type of physician you are or practitioner you are, um, you may not right now um, be doing your day-to-day -day normal um, duties and they may be, be called on to come help. Um, have you... Have you heard or seen or thought through any of the plans around, for example, um, I don't know, anesthesiologists or um, a, I'm trying to think, cardiologists or others that may not necessarily, um, they may be needed because there's still people who are going to be having emergency conditions even during this, but, but they may not, um, they might not be having certain surgeries, they may be having others, or they might be put up, maybe be rescheduled for a couple months in may have more time. Have you heard about them as part of the staffing plan? Um, uh, yeah, institutions are discussing having those conversations with with members of their medical staffs. And this is in the in more of the community setting where you have, you know, a pocket of probably employed physicians by the by the community hospital, but then you have a, a large number of private physicians who are on the medical staff whose offices have seen decreased volume. Uh, due to individuals engaging in physical uh, distancing, as opposed, uh, I, I prefer physical distancing as opposed to social distancing because at this time we need social supports. But maintaining appropriate safe space and staying home, their doctor's offices have been have seen marked decline. And certainly, as part of surge planning, if we are going to have significant um, 
need of physician resources, tapping those physicians to come in to assist um, with that is part of the work plan. Uh, from a standpoint of with elective surgeries, it's you know if those people need to do more more call surgeons coming in to do more call or assisting in ORs if there are surgical surgeries, uh, surgeries necessary. But when you have physicians who normally would have a full office who don't, bringing them in to assist with the surgeries is part of the action planning for all the organizations in the it should be in the country actually. Yeah, and so here's one thing I was thinking about, and I know this is probably, um, I hope I'm going to talk about something that I hope doesn't happen, but we we know that there's days where emergency departments go on different code levels to divert ambulances or, um, and so one of the things that we're seeing in some of the Q&A around disasters is understanding um, that under Amtala, there may be a time where a hospital is just at capacity. Um, it'll be interesting to see what that, that does mean and, and that, that it may need to, it may be hard to take any more new emergency patients. Um, they, it does, you know, they, they do hear that you still have to, of course, you know, work through your state and um, licensure and notice requirements around, around providing public notification of that. Um, but does it, does it appear, I mean, I guess, does it appear that that could be the the case and is that being planned for or is that and if it is is that where these overflow hospitals will come in into play and each institution um, in the greater Boston area is looking at how they can increase their capacity and I will give a lot of credit to the state government and regulators who have been very open to discussions about you know if there's a need to temporarily increase the number of ice intensive care beds that are operated at facility um, they understand that and, and they're being very um, helpful in trying to find a, a safe way to do that to to increase capacity inside the facilities. With respect to emergency rooms being overrun, uh, over overwhelmed, and not be able to take any additional capacity, there is, a, and we're very fortunate in Massachusetts to have a, a well-run emergency medical system in our regions to have good coordination among the, among the institutions. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, it was changed that Massachusetts hospitals could not go on divert. Uh, so you have to take patients uh, because they needed to be, they need to be taken and be seen, but there's a good coordination uh, through the EMS system related to who has capacity for certain types of cases, uh, where would someone be best treated. There are rules and regulations about certain types of Medical emergencies must go to the closest facility uh, versus uh, others that are required to the closest facility with a certain uh, equipment and capabilities. So, yeah, but, uh, so um, that's great. I mean, it's good to, that we're thinking through, the, I guess, those issues now um, and, and make sure that it's interesting because one of the other things that I, you know, when we think about um, all this is the idea of enforcement. And it's hard to think about in some ways because we think we've got, we're gonna have these frontline clinicians, physicians in hospitals, really trying to save lives with the best that they can. Um, it's interesting that CMS has stated they'll take a kind of, I would say like a case by case approach to that enforcement, um, looking at, you know, what, you know, what's happening with the hospital at the time, like what capabilities they have, what that person's condition was when they kind of showed up, um, um, you know, 
looking at transfers and looking at the conditions of like there's a national emergency and again um, looking at um, if the transfer if the transfer made sense because of the recipient hospitals like for example um, ventilators or um, certain rooms they might have or professionals at the time or resources um, you know what what are some of your thoughts around um, for hospitals I was trying to think like how, how do you document in the state of emergency are there things that we that people can think about now um, in minutes to meetings or otherwise just to to show the thought process or in, in the medical records or to show the thought process of um, of what what was happening at the time from a from a documentation standpoint uh, I, I don't want to say that's an afterthought I think our practitioners are are going to be working in a in a real time environment that are going to require uh, difficult decisions based upon resources that are available. And the fact that CMS and the regulars have indicated they'll look at this on a case by case basis is uh, pleasing to hear because I think they understand the severity of everyone is going to be trying to do the best that they can to provide the best health care possible to patients and we are in a crisis situation or will be in a crisis situation with the amount of resources that are available with respect to documentation it's you know the facts that are on the ground at the time you know we've been advised we've looked at the cms guidance with respect to postponement of elective surgeries um, and encouraged our providers to look at the the grid that is included in that that issue was issued on Wednesday the 18th of March about what was elective and what's not elective and it will eventually boil down to professional judgment of the of the provider but having that guidance from CMS as to what should get pushed out a little bit and what can be done so we can preserve PPE is 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 welcome I, I do I'm very appreciative of, of the responsiveness of CMS by issuing their, their waivers and giving guidance to, to understand that this is unprecedented territory that we're working our way into and that we're, none of us are exactly sure what we're gonna see, uh, but they're giving the benefit of the doubt to providers and, and caregivers that they're gonna do the best they can. Charles, I want to. I couldn't agree more, and I I want to thank you so much for joining me today on, on a Friday, uh, March 20th here, um, to talk about Intala and the current conditions. I know Boston is one of the hot spots right now, and and I do appreciate you taking the time today to talk talk to us. Um, so this is going to conclude our our podcast today, and I hope that you all will check out the the coronavirus hub on AHLA will be updated information and um, updated and real time as we can get trying to get out information to you all. So please keep checking that, that resource daily. Um, thank you everybody. Um, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you. following additional content is being included with the permission of the speakers. Charles, you're awesome for somebody who's Sorry, like, Sorry, I, I was free ranging and not sticking just to Amtala, but it, it is, uh, it no, all blends no. together.
Yeah, no, no. We, we, have to, we have to put it in the context of where it is. And I feel like if we just sit seriously sat and just talked about Intel, we're not getting the big picture. We have to talk about supply shortages, people shortages, because that's why people are going to move around or not be stable. Or I, I think I, I, I mean, I thought you were a rock star as usual. So. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I, when we were talking about it, I was actually having thoughts running through my head because I have a spreadsheet that I'm supposed to turn in by 2 p.m. to my CEO, which is, hey, Charles, all of your staff, what skills do they have and where can we redeploy them? <laughs> and I've had to go around this morning and talk to all of my risk managers and my attorneys and my assistant and say, okay, do you want to do visitor screening at the front door? Do you want to be a unit secretary? Can you do patient registration? Can you do EVS? All of them are like, no, I do not want to do EVS because they're like, I don't want to clean up patient rooms after COVID patients. <laughs> but I mean, when we say we're talking about everybody, it's like, okay, who can do what? I have, I have an RNJD. I'm like, hey, when's the last time you actually did patient care? She's like, are you really asking me that? I'm like, yes, I am. I'm asking you that. <laughs> Charles, that's amazing. I, I do remember the prep for swine flu and we got designated as non-essential personnel and we were going to get sent off campus <laughs> and just like sit there. And I was like, gosh, we could probably do something. But um, that tells you the difference, you know. Even oh, I, I've been having the, the discussion all day, all week long, the last week and a half with the so my offices are actually not in a hospital right now. I used to be inside of one of our hospitals. We're at an office park and we are the only people in the, in the, not the office park, but only people in our building. Like, why are we still here? I'm like, because we're essential personnel. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, if I was a lawyer in a law firm, I'd be working from home. I'm like, we're here because in case it hits the fan, we got to go help out. And we, we're, we're part of the healthcare team here. And if, you know, they need someone to go run supplies from hospital to hospital or office to office, we're going to get in our car and drive supplies from hospital to office. And that's, that's, I mean, everyone's, every, and this is not just unique to my institution, everybody in, in the Boston area, and I'm sure everybody across the country is like, okay, this is going to be all hands on deck. And we mean all hands on deck. I mean, our CEO is a nurse and she's like, yeah, show me how to do it. I'll run a ventilator. We don't have, we don't have enough respiratory therapists if, in case it's, it's you know, everybody's wow. on, on, on call. Wow. So, wow. 